Welcome back to the Tall Glass Podcast. I'm joined as always by Mike, and we have a special guest in the house today. Hey, I'm Shannon. (laughs) I'm Jimmy's wife. Hello, Shannon. Hey, Michael. This is a very important episode, and I think now more than ever, it's a very poignant episode because we are delving into what Shannon does for a career, Um, Mm -hmm. and it deals with fertility and fertility is becoming more in, in fertility studies and people who work in, in fertility is becoming more and more popular. Um, and we're here to talk to Shannon about it. It's kind of her, kind of her thing. It's kind of what she does. So Shannon, I want to start out. I want you to talk a little bit about kind of your background leading up to the point where you decided to make fertility your specialty. Tell us your of, origin story. Your origin story, like a comic book hero. From the beginning. <laughs> Childhood Shannon. So I started out my career as a nurse and I started in trauma. Um, I worked in Baltimore and absolutely loved it. It was one of the most unique experiences. Um, And from then, I always knew I wanted to kind of go outpatient, be able to see patients on a recurring basis, um, really just kind of have a day-to-day impact as as opposed to in the hospital of short versus long-term stay and then no follow-up care. So um, about two to three years into my career, I decided to go back to school to be a nurse practitioner. And... Throughout that time, I worked as a nurse in various different specialties, um, but fertility was always near and dear to my heart. Um, I have family members who have had infertility struggles, and I have a perfect, perfect nephew who is an IVF baby. And um, so it's always been something that I think has just encompassed my my thought and my love when it comes to healthcare. And once I finished my master's degree and was really looking at what do I want to do for the rest of my life and where do I want to start my career, fertility was the gold standard of what I could choose. And by a few happenstance and putting myself out there, I um, I was in touch with the physician I work with and decided to go shadow and send my resume. And from there, it's just been my absolute career love. It's amazing. And I've been in fertility at this point, uh, working on a year and a half now. Very nice. Very nice. In broad strokes, what does a fertility specialist do? Give me like a, like a general definition for the people at home, because it's more than just fertilization and stuff like that and, and the procedures involved with it, right? So what in broad strokes, the different facets, I know there's like genetic testing that could get involved in that as well and, mm-hmm. and storage of samples, get into that. What in broad strokes, what do they do? What do you yeah. do? What so do do? we work with, um, in both male and female infertility, um, 
primarily doing a lot of female infertility because we have wonderful colleagues who are also male infertility experts. Um, but looking at the different inhibitory processes and um, struggles that couples or individuals may go through when building families. And, you know, there's, there's couples who come to us who have never been able to get pregnant. We have couples who have gotten pregnant many times, but unfortunately have many pregnancy losses. So continuing mm. and holding on to a pregnancy is difficult. Um, we have some who are family planning and really they know that there is a certain genetic disorder that affects their family and they need to know if this is going to affect theirs. So this is kind of procreative management. Um, and then we have individuals who may not have any infertility struggles at all. They are just in need of a sperm donor or an egg donor to help build their family. So we look at it from a lot of different points of view, which I think is one of the most exciting and rewarding parts. Sure. I was looking at some statistics from the Census Bureau that said that um, the age of women, like the younger age of women, they're for the, as far as them getting pregnant, age 20 to 24 is dropping because not a lot of people get pregnant anymore when they're 20. That's how the world is today. Sure. And the, 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 but it's being offset by the number of women between 35 to 39 is increasing 67% since like the 1990s. So like the birth rate drum was staying the same. It's just that the younger people are not having kids as much as people who maybe the, the, the medium age of your person coming into your clinic is, is raising up to the, is those levels are growing. So I just find it to be interesting in a, in a growing field at that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is thanks to technological advancements, um, the ability to preserve your fertility as a woman with egg freezing, um, and then just the ability to defer to have children later. And if you didn't freeze your eggs to have the ability to go through IVF with genetic testing of the embryos that are created. So we can identify ones that are genetically normal for transfer and help the, the statistics for live birth become a lot higher than it would if they were trying naturally. I think that since you started working in fertility, the, the one that's been the most interesting and like the least you hear about tapped into is like the, the fact that people are getting starting family planning later, but they're not thinking about it in their more like, I guess, fertile years in their twenties mm -hmm. to actually freeze their eggs and go through that mm -hmm. process. I mean, I'm sure it's expensive, right. But like, if you don't, if you're career oriented, you don't have a partner yet, or you, you want to wait right. to your late thirties, you know, your, your chances that those eggs at that point are going to be as like robust and, and healthy as the ones in your twenties are lower. So it's interesting right. that like, um, I mean, that's a huge focus of your clinic too, is like trying to get that awareness out there because you can freeze them when you're 20 and then you know, use them when you're in your thirties. It's kind of no, sure. right. Right. a cool advancement mm -hmm. medically. I, uh, my next question is 
And you talk about awareness. I'm glad you brought that up because my next question is, what are the steps? I mean, what, what does a person come to? What decisions do they, I mean, I, and I guess every case is different, but mm-hmm. if we could pick an average patient and say, what are the steps and what is the, the mindset of the person coming into your clinic? Like what have they tried or what, to what point are they, you know, you know, I'll be perfectly honest with you. Um, we, um, me and Rihanna, I myself am a little bit of a fertility guy myself. I, uh, I was successful in three attempts, uh, but I know that our first attempt, we, it took about a year and I know Rihanna was told by her doctor, like after a year, we need to start looking at stuff. If you've been trying for a year, uh, mm-hmm. that was kind of like, that was the deadline. We need to start thinking about getting him tested, getting her tested, something like that. And I'm, tr- I'm, what is for awareness for the people out there? Like, what is the natural progression of steps leading to getting an appointment with you? Yeah. So the overarching rule of thumb is if you are less than 35 after a year of trying without pregnancy, that then is the time to see a fertility specialist. Now, if you are greater than 35, we say, or 35 to 40, we say less than six months. So if you get to six months of trying, not pregnant, you need to come see us. However, there are circumstances, if there is anything at all abnormal, um, your, the woman's periods do not come regularly or she, or he is, does not have, um, regular or normal ejaculatory secretions, whether that's volume or ability to get an erection or ejaculation, then it's time to see a fertility expert sooner. You don't need to wait those periods of time before. Um, It's like if all else is normal, mm -hmm. six months if you're older than 35 or Mm. in a year if you're- Yeah, and I mean, if you're- everything else being- normal, no genetic issues or mm-hmm. miscarriages or you know, other things like that. Right. And if you're over 40, then immediately, because mm-hmm. we need to start intervention ASAP. So those are kind of the rule of when to come see a fertility gotcha. specialist. Gotcha. If you put an average, if you could put an average patient walking into the fertility clinic, what is this average patient? Male, female, age around, new mom, or is this someone who's had kids? Who's this average person walking in? If you were to take, that's a tough question, but if you were to take Mm -hmm. the grand scope of people coming in and put it down to an average, who's walking through that door? Yeah, I mean, that's a really great question, but it's a really hard question. Um, So I would say a lot of the times, late twenties to late thirties, um, regular to irregular with diagnosis, maybe of PCOS polycystic ovarian syndrome, where they have irregular periods. Um, it's pretty common. Um, sometimes we'll see 
men who have already had a semen analysis. So maybe they have some mild male factor infertility. Um, Which is a higher rate than most people think, right? Like some, most some people think it's always life. like the, the, the female sure. is, yeah. Yeah. is the one that's yeah, and 50, 50 is about male, female. So, so it's, it's happening. Yeah. I, I saw that statistic too. I saw half and half. Damn. Mm-hmm. It a, is. And what a, that, it's because all that estrogen dope. they're putting in our food these days. Yeah. That's what <laughs> it's dropping our, <laughs> dropping my tea levels, water. man. <laughs> need to get on some TRT like Rogan. Yeah, I wouldn't even paint his house. No, I'm kidding. But so, yeah, I, I saw that same statistic and I was, I was surprised and that's, mm-hmm. I guess my own ignorance, but you always, I guess, you know, between you and the wall, I, myself, after a year, they said, Hey, it's very easy to test the man. So usually mm-hmm. procedure wise, they're like, why don't you come in here and, you know, do your thing. Give us so a I sample. had to try to go in there and, uh, I had to give them a sample, which is just, I mean, the worst environment. It's like a, it's like a room <laughs> and there's magazines in the nightstand. Like They have uh, videos. Mm-hmm. I have yeah. a smartphone that came with me all the time. So, this, I mean, who's getting, <laughs> who are those magazines for, you know? But, uh, but you know, all was well. But, um, you know, it was uh, very interesting situation but uh yeah Yeah, i mean mean, we get couples that come in and will say you know the female will say hey i know my periods are irregular do we really need to test my husband or do we need to test my partner the answer is always yes 100 of the time because we can't assume that just because one thing is obvious and maybe a barrier to conception that something else isn't going on it's also you know Billable. Wait, why do you think that's true? But why do you think a woman wouldn't want to have her husband tested? Or why would there be why would there be a hesitancy? Men get very, I don't know if it's self-conscious or oh, yeah, prideful yeah. about being able to do this. Mm. Um, and then presumably the fear that something is wrong and it's on them. And that yeah. feels against male nature to yeah. not be able to reproduce. Yeah. Because I, I've definitely, you know, had circumstances where it's primarily male factor infertility. And sometimes it is just seemingly unbearable for the man to accept that or to um to come to terms with that and it it weighs very heavy but I also you know not to say this doesn't happen with females because it certainly Mm -hmm. does um it's just you know difference of expression at times definitely different like a different emotion probably coming Mm -hmm. out from one gender to the other I'm sure my -hmm. goodness but it is part of the whole shebangabang. Mm. Um, so I want to ask you next. I think you've expressed what you love about your job. Mm-hmm. I'd like to know what maybe the downsides can be. And it doesn't have to be against a company. It could be where you think your industry could improve where you think that um, 
knowledge of what you do or knowledge of what need, could be done in different situations? Like what, where would you like to see your profession moving forward? Where can they improve? Lay it on us. Mm-hmm. I think one of the harder conversations to have is when we're up against the diagnosis of unexplained infertility. So, and I, I tell patients not that you want anything wrong, not that we want to say something is wrong here, something is wrong there. Um, but not having an answer for something to quote unquote fix or modify or to have the explanation for is incredibly difficult. And there is a lot that we don't know about fertility yet. I mean, in comparison to fields like cardiology, neurology, fertility is new. Fertility is a baby compared to all of those. So, you know, there's still a lot. And I think one of the biggest emerging fields is immunology and fertility and really seeing how the immune system is playing a role. Um, one that's, you know, that's one thing where this field is expanding and I think it's going to help us a lot in the future, but right now it, it makes it difficult when there's not something to directly point to. Um, and I think the second part is, is that, you know, I, I'm very fortunate to practice in a really, a large city, a very inclusive city. Um, but, you know, really making sure that we're including everyone in family planning. I specifically work a lot with donors. And so whether that be egg donors um, or families choosing to use sperm donors, but making sure that we're making family building as inclusive as possible, because, you know, sometimes it's a single parent who is single by choice or um, two intended fathers or two intended mothers and really making sure that we're providing the exact same resources and making sure that we're offering any help and making them feel included and, you know, making sure that when we're talking to them that we're you know, using appropriate language and making sure that they're feeling like we are taking into consideration their family structure because family structure looks a whole lot different for a lot of different families. And I see that on a day-to-day basis, but it's one of my most favorite things is, you know, building families that may not look like a traditional family. At the end of the day, I, I personally believe that though different family structures might be different, universally it's about love it's about caring and it's about you know bringing that new life or whatever they want to do you know there's there's definitely more things that make us similar and i uh, speaking as a parent i think there's more things that make us similar whether it be you know whatever family structure it is there's more Mm -hmm. things as far as how we care for our children and how we would like to bring a new life and what we wish for them there's more things that make us similar than different mm-hmm. um you're exactly right and i have a, I think I it have all a, comes from conversation sure communication so important 
not only as a family, but in a marriage, right? You know what I'm talking yeah. about, Jim. Next mm -hmm. question. <laughs> what would you like, if you could speak to society at large, mm -hmm. what would you like to tell them about fertility? What would you like, what misconceptions would you like to, would you like to debunk, Sean, whatever you want to say? What do you want them to know, society at large? Speak to the people. Infertility is a whole lot more common than you think. One in eight couples struggle with infertility. I and saw so, that statistic. Yeah. So you yes. sit at a dinner table with your family or with friends, and it's very likely that someone at that table may be going through same infertility struggles you may be going through, or they may have had a loss. So whether that's one miscarriage or recurrent pregnancy loss, that is incredibly hard. And talking about these situations is helpful and not feeling alone because infertility can make couples feel so alone, so self-conscious about every little decision they've made in their life. And that it shouldn't be that way and opening conversations is one of the best things that we can do. And, you know, not always offering a solution. Things don't need a solution. They don't need to be told to, well, have you had sex enough while you're fertile? Or are you doing it at the right time? <laughs> okay. Or, Wait a minute. Hold yep. on a second. are these conversations occurring? I have, I, a, 100%. Yeah. Some yep. old, some like grandma's like, are you, it's boomers, that? dude. Yeah. yeah. Oh man, like, you, you would be surprised. Or, or you can have yeah. my kids. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, these things are so yeah. hurtful to people, and sure. you're just like, they're funny, but they're yes, I yes, <laughs> I am having sex when I'm fertile. Thank you for asking. I didn't well, think about know, that. <laughs> and that whole thing too was that's such a and, and you hear that when you're trying. And again, I'm speaking from experience when you're trying to conceive, it's like, okay, we got to do it now. Cause this is the best time. Mm -hmm. That whole thing is that whole thing needs to go away. I think to me, it's like, yeah. it's nothing be, sexy about that. And, and it's just like, you're like, oh, okay, you get stressed out and there's nothing good about when you're stressed out, nothing. It's not good. It's not mm -hmm. how it's supposed to happen. Can't say, and I think most doctors do say, like, if you go to a doctor and you're talking, they're like, throw that calendar away. Like, you do not mm -hmm. need to know when you're most fertile or any of that junk. It's just going to make you stress out, which is, which is true to that. But yeah, so uh, I guess watching, uh, watching what you say and being supportive mm -hmm. is the is the best. Yeah, I think I'm a little more aware a lot more aware and maybe like more like sensitive to these comments because what you do, but you know, you hear people like, will ask like, Oh, when are you guys thinking about having kids? And that's such a common thing to ask, but you have no idea if that couple is like, if you're really close, like if it was you asking me someone that, you know, I consider, you know, my closest friend and, and someone I talk to about anything that's very different than someone who's not that close to be like asking a question that, potentially could be extremely personal and challenging that I'm not going to, you know, let's say we were struggling, you know, and yeah. it's like someone yeah. asked me, am I going to tell some, 
not a stranger, but someone who I would consider maybe just an acquaintance, like, oh, we're actually trying really hard. Or am I going to say like, oh, you know, time's not right yet. So I think, you know, there's a lot of carryover from decades and decades of like less sensitivity around this stuff that continues to happen. It's happened to me, like, we're not trying, but people will ask and it's like, dude, you have no idea. We like Mm -hmm. really are. And it's like a huge, you know, contention point in our life right now. Like Shannon said, like, fertility is a burgeoning field and i think the generation couple generations behind us or one generation behind us like if you were over 30 if you were over 35 or something it was you're done it's over Mm -hmm. throwing the towel and Mm -hmm. up until that point it's like what are you waiting for what are you waiting for what are you waiting clock's ticking yeah so but that's yeah i mean generationally that's just people have those conversations. There's not much you can do about it with these, these non-filtered boomers, like Jimmy said, but you know, those damn boomers. Yeah. You kind of have to handle them as they come. Speaking of what's the oldest patient at your clinic that you've seen get pregnant? What was their name? What was, um, their social, what was their social? Yeah. <laughs> Where do they live? Address, you know, details, details. No, our, our group is pretty, pretty strict about needing to be under 50. Wow. For trying to conceive. Janet Jackson was 50 years old. She had her first. So you wouldn't have taken Janet Jackson? Not after 50. Typically, no. We're not trying to Hmm. get someone pregnant after 50. Yeah. But you'll take a 46-year-old. Correct. And like... I mean, and likely they're going to need... well almost yeah. absolute guarantee they're going to need donor eggs. Um, but you know, we, we sure. have to see high risk OB doctors and we do lots of testing prior to, to make sure they're as healthy as possible moving into conception. Mm. You, you say donor eggs and I, I, I've completely missed this. If we've mentioned this before in conversation, but so a, a woman can give her eggs to another woman. Correct. So these donors are typically very young, somewhere between 21 and 32. Um, they go through rigorous screening. She actually um, runs the donor program for her company. So she does all the yeah. screening for like okay. all these okay. women that are willing to, I mean, they get paid, but mm-hmm. willing to donate their their eggs. Do they donate all of them? No. So what's really cool about the ovaries, I love the ovaries they're so smart so our ovaries are like we i know don't don't, you gotta sit back you gotta sit back for a second while i uh nitty-gritty fertility talk let me take take my headphones off (laughs) (laughs) no you might learn something yeah listen i'm here ready okay so ovaries are like a vault you are born with all the eggs you're ever going to have in your life and every month a group comes to the surface and the ovaries are smart. They only put out in proportion to what they have left. So if there's a healthy number of eggs left in reserve, they'll put out a healthy number on the surface. So maybe 10 to 12 eggs per ovary. And so they don't blow their load, basically. Smart so they will. We're talking, about ovaries. We're talking about ovaries here, Jim. <laughs> we'll get to that. So it applies. They will produce these one follicle or a fluid filled structure with an egg inside of it on the ovary gets large and ovulates every month. That's what gives the woman the opportunity to become pregnant. And then the rest of them will slough off. So this happens every single month. 
mm. until menopause. So we are only taking the eggs that have come to the surface this month. So we're not diving into her reserve. She still has the ability to conceive oh. later in life if she chooses. So this is only, you know, taking what the body is already going to naturally give up that month. Interesting. I had no idea that. So when they used to, they come to the surface, are these, but they're not being, are they being implanted in the uterine wall? Are they, are they hanging out all these eggs? Are they just ones that, that bubble up to the surface? You said come up to the surface. Bubble no, the so they're, they're on the ovaries. So kind of sitting outside independent of the uterus and kind okay. of sitting to each side of the uterus. Then they okay. leave the vault and they either become the, the chosen one out mm -hmm. of their batch Correct. that could be fertilized or they're just part of the, the group that's leaving the, the woman's body, but not the, not the chosen one of that Correct. batch. And in the younger years, there's more of them that come up to the right. Interesting. And more of them are genetically normal. Um, so donors being so young, assumably about 80% of those eggs of her total eggs are about, are um, genetically normal. About 20% of them are abnormal. That's just normal aging process. Our reproductive system for women ages faster than we do chronologically. Um, so, and you can, oh. let's say you, let's say you, you got a donor, you take the ones that were not going to be the chosen one. You can then do tests to ensure it's not one of those like 20% that are like not viable, right? Correct. So there's so they're made all into that. embryos, we can test them. So yeah. Now that, that fertilized eggs. That 20% grows with age? Correct. So Probably by like the time flips. you're yeah. 35 years old, it's about 50, 50. Mm. Um, and then by the time you're in your forties, you know, 70, 80 plus percent of those eggs oh, are genetically abnormal. Really? Correct. And Why then by 42, the majority what is, of them. What's the science are, behind that? So they've been aging since we were in utero with our mothers. Gotcha. So they've been aging for a long time and they just are going along with life, but it's, it's already been a long road for them. It's mm -hmm. like a pickle in a jar. And sometimes you forgot that you bought pickles and like you've eaten mm -hmm. most of the pickles, but in the back of the fridge, there's still one pickle left in the pickle jar. And then like a year later, you're like cleaning out your fridge. And you're like, Oh, I forgot. I bought pickles. And then you eat that pickle and you're like, I don't know. That pickle kind of tasted funny. Aren't pickles for fermented? So aren't they meant to just, Stay they're, fermented for a while? they're sitting in a fluid that's somewhat similar to vinegar. I thought it was apropos. Isn't that what we have going on there? Or, you know? <laughs> Listen, I went to Catholic. I went to Catholic school. So mm -hmm. when we, so this is all we heresy. Learned, when we yeah. learned about like the meal, the male, the female, especially the female reproductive system, I feel like it was like one page, and then we then we just kept going. Mm -hmm. Right. So I mean, like, what am I? As it should to? be. As the Lord intended. <laughs> As the Lord. You intended. also learn that basically, if you look at a boy, you're going to get pregnant. And That's true. My whole field well, is when that listen, doesn't happen. You have to understand that me and Jimmy both come from a guy who, who, 12, 12 children. He was able to, you know, mm -hmm. 
complete the deed. I mean, when I gave my sample to the nurse, she ended up getting pregnant just from carrying that cup down to the, to wherever they store it. So I don't know what she dropped on. it. Actually, that's how heavy it was when you well, gave no, they it. Were, it was that they were, dense. They were jumping like salmon when they go upstream. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> all right. So I have. I feel like you need to send your semen analysis report now. I need to <laughs> well, see if you're fine. all talk. Wait, or... yeah. <laughs> you wish, and you know what? If they offered me enough money, I told Rihanna all the time we should, but she said I she didn't like the idea of it because you never know. But I have a question for you. We've talked about the benefits and the great things of fertility. And I know you're not going to say anything bad about fertility, but I have a thought experiment for you that I want you to expand your mind. And this is a very philosophical question. My wife had three C-sections. Mm-hmm. The first one we had to for, for medical reasons. And then after that, they just continued it. And I know some women have a, ge a genetic, like if they have like a narrow birth canal mm -hmm. or something like that, they're going to opt for a C-section. And I started to think when we were talking about that and that was all happening, I started to think as a society, are we are we heading for a direction where we don't do any more natural births? If somebody who has a genetic reason for not being able to get a, to have a natural birth, if they have a narrow birth canal or, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know the, I, I don't know all the other genetic components for why one would have to have a C-section. And, and I know not all of them are genetic, but there are some. Mm -hmm. If that genetic material has been passed on to the next generation, then, then you have a growing number of people who can't not have a natural birth. So that is, that's happening. So if the growing population um, continues to grow to people who can give natural birth, then it seems like C-sections are gonna be growing in number. And I haven't looked at the data on C-sections, uh, so I don't know, but are they growing? Are we seeing more and more of those? To relate back to what we're talking about today, is there any issues that you could see could arise from growing number of people using fertility assistance moving forward? And specifically, when it relates to genetic traits. And I don't know if, I mean, if you're talking about age, that's not a genetic trait. So if, if it's just mm -hmm. someone who's older who has to go in for fertility treatments, but you know, let's say it's a, a and, and you'd have to enlighten me on what a genetic issue would be for why a man or a woman would need fertility. But mm -hmm. if that gene is carried on to the next generation, could the number of growing, the people who are passing their genetic material who can't have children naturally, which then increases the number of people who can't have children naturally as generational, as it grows. Do you see any issues far into the future with the practice of fertility? No. And my, my thought behind this is that the practice of infertility and fertility management is we are looking for ways to help 
circumvent if there are major genetic issues. So let's say someone has is a carrier or two parents are carriers for something like cystic fibrosis. Um, cystic fibrosis can range in its severity, can be absolutely devastating. Um, some men can have infertility in relation to it, even if their otherwise symptoms are not significant. Um, what our field allows us to do is genetically test embryos created so we can avoid certain genetic disorders. So if two parents are positive for the same recessive disorder, something like cystic fibrosis, what we can do is we can genetically test each of those embryos and see it, which ones are affected by the mutation and which ones are not so that we will only transfer an embryo that is genetically normal and that is not affected by said disorder. Um, I see this in practice with things like Huntington's disease, which can be, which is absolutely devastating. And we see people come in and, you know, they may or may not know their status. They may know that their father or someone in their family is affected. They may not want to know if they're going to be affected because often doesn't present until a little bit later in life, but they want to create embryos that they know are not going to be affected. So that next generation, we can actually circumvent that and not continue to pass it on from generation to generation. Hmm. So it's actually better, if you will, than trying to conceive naturally and running the risk of passing that condition on in that sense. Correct. For, so, for scenarios like this, when we know there are some, some okay. sort of genetic disorder. But let's say it's just, exactly. it's not a genetic disorder mm -hmm. situation. It's just a couple that is just struggling, whether it's male or female mm -hmm. fertility reasons and not age, like mm -hmm. low sperm count, or mm -hmm. I don't know, the, 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 the condition you said, that's not genetic, like uh CO, not COPD, uh, PCOS. PCOS mm -hmm. are those things because you wouldn't necessarily isolate against those things. Sure. So are those things hereditary? Like we'd be passing out, we'd be making a child who comes from a dad who has low sperm count, therefore he may, or you know, vice versa for the mom. Yeah, yeah, we see that with things like PCOS that we can see can run in families or endometriosis. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah. I mean, we can absolutely see them. It's, you know, and then at that point it's, do you procreate using right. your own genetic material or right. do you not? And, you know, that's incredibly hard. And when it's something like PCOS while, or endometriosis, while it's tough in the moment and tough during your reproductive years and maybe expressed to different severities, um, thankfully fertility treatments can help get pregnant one way or another. Um, mm. however, you know, you have to think that if you are in a relationship and your wife, your partner has something like PCOS, where maybe their periods are a little bit irregular, that makes it difficult to conceive. Would you consider not using your spouse's eggs? Right. Just because of that, 
because it may be difficult if your daughter has PCOS and it may take them a little bit of time to conceive or may take sure. them the need for help. Most people are going to answer no, that yeah. it, the risk is worth it. It's not like you're passing on something that's going to kill this child exactly. when they're three years old. Exactly. Like something that may be yeah. a condition that sucks, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. So, which these I'm glad new- we, go ahead. These are all new- yeah. These are all very nuanced decisions and, you know, decisions that end up falling between different people and, you know, what, what yeah. they decide to do. It's, it's, uh, and I'm glad we, we, we actually, it, this perfect segue into the topic, you know, that I wanted to, to talk about just hearing some of the patients that you've interacted with in your time in fertility, the com because of the technology of fertility, the combinations that can present at your clinic are unique as in a couple that wants to use their, their sperm and their egg, but they want someone else to carry it. Mm-hmm. because they don't want the, the woman doesn't want to get pregnant. She wants to have a child, but she doesn't want to carry and go through a pregnancy. So, and, and to touch on that, I mean, using a gestational carrier is, has to come with a medical diagnosis. Of sure. This cannot be like, I don't want to carry, I don't want to be fat. This is, you know, you it have could be to have a like true medical diagnosis, right? Because you know, you have to justify could it, could it, another one. Could it be mental health? Yeah. I mean, in, in extenuating it's circumstances. That's kind of fascinating, isn't it? That you're like, I my mental health is not going to allow me to carry this child, but please afterwards give the child to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude. There's, there's all like, kinds. I mean, there's, uh, and we, we don't have any kids. We're, we're not trying, but like, yeah. I mean, you have, you know, kids of, of your own that are yours and and your wife's, you know, genetic makeup. But I've always said, you know, for me personally, some of these situations where it's like, let's say I have a low sperm count and we want to have a child. I don't think I'm cool with like us using a donor sperm. So it's like, yeah, like you carried it. It's like half you, but it's half somebody else. And like, I'll be it's dad and everything, but the biological side, I think I, at that point, I'd rather just adopt a child, you know, but there's all these, because of the technology and because of what they can do, there's all these combinations you can have, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it, it, the, the possibilities are almost endless when it mm-hmm. comes to like, you know, same sex couples donating, you know, one, the, let's say, Reciprocal say, IVF is what you're trying to explain. Yeah, you explain it. It's interesting. So for same-sex female couples, they one female can go through the IVF process and have her eggs extracted and fertilized with donor sperm. And then the other partner can carry the baby. And this is called reciprocal IVF. So okay. the genetics are from... Yeah one woman and then the other one carries it's really it's it's a really awesome i think that one's really cool it's so because like obviously they can't have a child regardless that's half of each sure so it's cool that both get to be a part of like the like Mm -hmm. the making of that child one biologically and one via like you know carrying it pregnant sure so but then there's just so many unique (laughs) combinations yes (laughs) <laughs> there, there is, is, and I think that's one of the best parts of 
going through this, like I said, you know, there's so many ways to think of family building and family planning as a whole. And, you know, even the thought of thinking about someone freezing their eggs because they don't have a partner, they're not in a committed relationship and they don't foresee that they want to have kids on the horizon. So they freeze their eggs. And then, you know, later on, you would hope that, you know, they could get pregnant on their own, but in the event that they can't, um, they have those eggs and the partner that's in their life, you know, has to, has to understand that, that their family building may look a little bit different than what they expected because maybe they do need to use IVF and she has eggs from when she was 30 years old to be able to fertilize. And then well, what else would their family building look like? Like normal, just if they were trying naturally or. Oh yeah. I mean that to me again, it's like, that makes, I think sense to like the common person not mm-hmm. in it. Like, yeah. I mean, we can use these frozen eggs that are like much more likely to be mm-hmm. good to go, or we can like have sex, but maybe those eggs are not going to be sure. great. Yeah. 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 But for some people, the thought of technological intervention is very hard to swallow. So not even just the thought of, you know, diverse family building, but just the use of technology with family building. Listen, I think uh, this has been one of the more educational episodes of uh, a tall glass of podcast. I've learned a lot, Jim, I can tell you've learned a lot and, uh, (laughs) You know, I've learned a lot out, in the last year. Yeah. You know, <laughs> folks out there, this is going to, it's a growing field. This is something I did see a statistic where like 33% of people have either gone through fertility treatment or know somebody who's gone through fertility, which is the stupidest statistic I've ever heard. That's like saying like 75% of people have either watched Game of Thrones or know somebody <laughs> who's watched Game of Thrones. Like, give me a fucking number. Okay. Like you can, I know a lot of fucking people. So that number means nothing. But it is a growing field. And I think in our society and how it is that it's going to be growing. And it's, it's, and I think when you talk about how not having enough like resources, I think the demand for what you do is going to go up. And I think with it, technology is going to, mm-hmm. is going oh, to go sure. up it's in, in 10, 15 years from now, it's going to be amazing to see what fertility has done or what they've come up with. And uh, it's, it's going to be very interesting to see. And is there anything, is there any, so I, when I'm thinking of advancements in the future, it seems like you've, yeah you've covered like the combinations, like there's no more combinations that you could add via advancements. It'd be more maybe like the probabilities would increase mm-hmm. or like the limits of age would increase. But is there any other combinations that we haven't talked about that like aren't possible yet? Like, are you trying to ha- allow same sex couples to find a way to, you know, oh, have yeah. a child or is that completely like off the table? You know, like the same you never know. Because this stuff 50 years ago, just what we're talking about now, would sound like, you know, two guys being able to procreate. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I know. I think we'll just have to stay tuned and hope a tall glass of podcast is still around. Oh, it'll be still around. Talk about what the advancements are. We'll be going strong. Uh, Shan, I want to thank you um, for coming on. 
and talking with us about all of this interesting stuff and making the people aware. Thank you for taking time out of your day. And as absolutely. always, absolutely. And as always, this has been a tall glass of podcast. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. Cheers.